This is episode 81 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Patriotic Millionaires. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really excited to have a new guest on the show today. I learned about patriotic millionaires really through Abigail Disney, who I followed on Twitter. And um, then there was a profile of her in The New Yorker that talked about patriotic millionaires. And I was like, hmm, that sounds like an interesting group. And so one thing has led to another. And I'm really pleased to uh, welcome a new guest to the show. Uh, this is Morris Pearl with us today, and I'll give a little background about him. He currently serves as the chair of Patriotic Millionaires. It's a group of hundreds of high net worth Americans who are committed to making all Americans, including themselves, better off by building a more prosperous, stable, and inclusive nation. Uh, there's a little bit more about the group here, but we'll talk to him about that during the course of the show And previously, he was managing director at BlackRock, which is one of the largest investment firms in the world. His work included the Maiden Lane transactions and assessing government's potential losses from bank bailouts in the United States and Europe. We remember those. Prior to BlackRock, Mr. Pearl had a long tenure on Wall Street, where he invented some of the securitization technology connecting America's capital markets to consumers in need of credit. And he's a CFA charter member and lives in New York City, where it sounds like he does some bike riding. So uh, anxious to make sure that he stays safe doing that. And welcome to the show, Morris. Great to be on your show, Jennifer. Thank you. All right. I investigated the website after I learned of your organization. And you have a comment in there that the organization's work centers on two things that matter most in a democracy, power and money. And that was music to my ears. I've always been interested in power and money. So tell me how that kind of overarching theme affects what you do. Yeah, the the problem is really that power and money seem to go together much more than really should be the case in a democracy. We have we're moving towards a system that has a few rich people and lots of poor people. And that doesn't work well for anybody, not the poor and frankly, not the rich either. The rich look at their own long-term enlightened self-interests. And part of it is because the people who are only looking out for the short term, how I going to make more money in the next month or two are the people that politicians spend so much time with because they need to constantly raise more and more and more money to pay for their more and more and more expensive political campaigns. And so that's why the two sort of get linked together in this in this problem. I sometimes feel like it's a cultural issue in the United States. I lived in Europe for many years, and there just didn't seem to be the same kind of preoccupation with wealth that I see in the United States. Of course, it's so subjective, right? But I I sometimes wonder if the United States is particularly vulnerable to that. I don't know. What do you think? I think somehow we got into this, into this feeling that everyone should be in it for himself and try to keep up with the Joneses or do better than the Joneses or whatever. I mean, it wasn't always that way, though. That's true. We had a very inclusive society. You know, if you look at, you know, the movements in the late 1960s and 70s, I think it was, um, you know, it sort of started with Carl Icahn, you know, figuring out that he could close TWA and get slightly more than the value that he had to pay for the stock. And 
you know, Ronald Reagan telling people that government is the problem, the enemy, not, not the solution. I think we have to get back to the idea that government is just people working together and that um, there's things we can do collectively that we can't do individually, a lot of things, in fact, and that it really makes sense for people to do things collectively together. And we have a word for that, and the word for that is government. We vote on things. We send our elected representatives to do things. And people understand that if they're, you know, members of a country club that has a board of directors or live in a co-op or something. But somehow, when they're electing their representatives to do far more important things like running the national government, they seem to think it's sort of this, this other, you know, there's something else. It's the enemy. We really just want to do things by ourselves. And really, that's not true at all. So many of us, you know, who have built fortunes should understand that they were built based on things provided by people who came before us, whether it's the education institutions or the infrastructure, you know, the internet or the highways. There's so many things that we did and we built together that really allowed so many of us to get so wealthy. And those are the things we have to understand and that we can't, we can't do it ourselves. We can't live in a society with a few rich people, not support people. You know, they tried that in South Africa in the 19, well, through the 1970s and 80s. And, you know, it did not end well for the rich people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that your organization, well, to step back for a second, I feel as though a lot of wealthy people understand what you're saying as individuals, but they haven't yet found a mechanism. And that's why I thought your organization was interesting. They haven't found a mechanism to work together to get those ideas, to be able to act on those ideas. And kind of ironically, so Abigail Disney, if I have this right, she's the granddaughter of Walt Disney's brother. Do I have that right? So she's she's a Disney heir. Yeah, her her grandfather was Roy Disney. Her father was an executive in the Disney Corporation some years ago. She's currently not involved in the Disney business at all. Right. And it's interesting that she's used her platform and her wealth to bring attention to the organization, uh, Patriotic Millionaires. So it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, way to get some attention and, and some yeah. make people more aware. Yeah, I mean, we have mechanisms, people working together to do things. You know, some of them are called political parties. We have Mm. the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. We have lots of organizations. I think we, the patriotic millionaires, and, you know, people can look on our website and see what we do. We are bringing together a lot of business people and investors who are kind of wanting to speak out. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. We we encourage our members to speak out, to speak at events, to write op-eds, to talk to bloggers and people like you and mm-hmm. journalists. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to explain that even though there's a few people who are saying that greed is good, you know, echoing you know, Michael Douglas from the original Wall Street movie, there's a lot more people who you may not have heard from as much who understand that greed is not actually in their own long-term best interests and that that's not how everyone feels. Let's talk some more about that. So the organization has has, um, made the argument that economic inequality in the United States is a destabilizing influence. And so talk to me first about what tools or metrics your organization uses to measure uh, economic inequality, and then how do you think that inequality eventually, that instability, I should say, eventually manifests itself? Well, I mean, you can measure in lots of ways. You can see, you know, we can look at Gini coefficients. You can look at what percentage of the wealth, the top 1% or one-tenth of 1% has. Mm-hmm. But what I like to look at is sort of how many Americans do not have any savings do not have any investments in the stock market that our political leaders talk about all the time and really are just barely getting by and are, understand they're living 
on the edge of not getting by. And right now, half of Americans don't have any savings. And that's a problem. And those are the people who have this just this very fragile life. Mm-hmm. And they are not people who are helping investors like me get rich by you know paying bills every month and buying iPhones and buying expensive shoes and expensive ice cream. So I want to live in a country where pretty much everyone makes enough money to get by. We believe that people who work full time should have a living wage and make enough money to live on and support their families, like our my family did when I was young. So that's sort of what we're looking at is the number of Americans who are trying to live on not enough money to live on. I think sometimes it, you know, we hear so much about the stock market. And for those of us who were invested in the stock market, it's been a fabulous run. And just recently, I was uh, attending some talks about the uh, forecast for the economy. And the comment was made that half of Americans are not in the stock mo- stock market in any form, even their 401ks. I was surprised at that. I didn't think that it was as much as 50% were completely out. So to your point, when the politicians talk about the stock market, there are a lot of people out there saying, who cares? Yeah. And I think they have to understand that. And part of the problem to get back to the connection of power and money is that the people they talk to are in the stock market. Right. When they're having a $1,000 a person fundraising cocktail party, probably 100% of the people who show up are in the stock market Mm -hmm. and see how well it's going. Um, I mean, 100% of the people, not the waiters and waitresses. Oh, right. (laughs) Right. 100% of the donors. Um, And that's part of the problem is that our politicians have to spend so much time with that half of the population that they kind of forget about the other half of the population. And you know, to answer your question, it's manifesting itself in people just sort of giving up on both sides of politics. I think that's what happened in 2016, mm-hmm. is that people were rejecting politics in general. You know, they elected people, including the president, who were not politicians at all. Mm-hmm. And when they got what they wanted, well, it's for them to decide, but they sort of rejected politics and rejected government as a force for good, which I think that is the real problem. If they're rejecting sort of acting collectively for a government in general. Yeah, it's a sign of disillusionment that I can't hold against people. I can understand Yeah, I can understand why they would arrive at that position. And I also feel as though we don't realize often how close people are to uh, really having a serious financial problem because they're kind of getting along until something happens, like a medical emergency or the loss of of, uh, one of the uh, wage earners in the family. Uh, losing their job. They're, they're just these small things that suddenly you realize how close people are to the brink of financial disaster. Yeah, and those people, they don't see anyone trying to help them. So, I mean, they, they want to vote for someone who at least understands their problems and mm-hmm. maybe can help them. And if they don't see that on one side or the other, they're going to reject that. And so I think American society has to show those people some kind of solution, some kind of path forward, some kind of hope that things will be better for their children than was for them. And so that's why we need sort of big, bold ideas to change the course. Um, you know, more of the same is not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me at my advanced age how quickly this has changed in this country. You know, it's within our lifetimes. Things have changed a lot in our lifetimes, some for the better, some for the worse. I celebrate my 60th birthday earlier this month. 
Mm-hmm. And some things are much better than they were 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, civil rights, you know, racism, in some ways it's much better than it was mm-hmm. 60 years ago. And arguably in some ways it's worse. Um, so our society keeps changing. But, you know, I've been, I have a little granddaughter, not even one yet. And I'm trying to do what I can to give her and her generation the kind of opportunities that I grew up with in my generation. Yeah, we'll talk some more about legacy further on, but I think that's one of the things that your organization is communicating to to the rest of us is be careful about being focused on the short term because although you may make a lot of money in the short term, long term, this is not going to turn out well. Look, I'm doing this because I feel that trying to change the policies of our nation is going to do more to improve the lives of my children and now granddaughter than making them another million dollars would. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do politics and policy work full time now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So, the organization has three main tenets about oh, the first one's about political power, the second one's living wage, and the third one is the about taxes. Rich people should pay more taxes. And there's a quote or motto on the website every American deserves as much political power. As millionaires, which is a which is a bold statement, will resonate with some. Although a lot of people will be skeptical about how you could get there. And so, what are your thoughts about that? What's changed, and how can we move in that direction? I think, frankly, things have changed in our way over the past few years. I think we're having a lot of influence. Some of the ideas that some of the presidential candidates are coming up with that are now part of the mainstream debate were not even thinkable five years ago. Did you, did anyone even hear the terms wealth tax in 2015? Mm -hmm. No. And so I think we're at least talking about those things. I think we've sort of moved the needle on the national conversation about, I think people are recognizing that we at least have to talk about doing something about this, you know, really severe inequality that's gotten so much worse during the course of our lifetimes. You know, currently, you know, the top 1% has more of our national income than does the entire bottom half of the people. And that's not sustainable. It's just not because, as Thomas Piketty explained to us, when people, when some people are making more money than they're spending from their investments. They just get richer every year. And the compounding effects makes it even bigger and bigger and bigger every single year. And it's just inevitable that the rich get richer and everyone else has a smaller piece of the pie. And so that's what we're really addressing. And we feel that there's sort of three avenues to go with. One is tax policy. That's what the group was founded on. That was the original issue. Mm. And basically the idea that the rich people should pay higher tax rates than regular people. Currently, rich people pay lower tax rates, lower percentages than people that have to work for a living. And how has that how has that come about? That seems so so wrong or so odd. What? You want to tax job creators? No, that's what they say all the time. <laughs> I see. Is that, is that rich people are job creators and so shouldn't pay any taxes. Or rich people use a tiny fraction percent of their money to be philanthropists and pay for art museums. And so they shouldn't be required to pay taxes. Uh, they have all kinds of excuses. Um, you know, the primary thing is that we only tax people on their income, not on their wealth. And so when I have my investments, the investments go up in value by billions of dollars every year, but I don't sell them, I don't count that as income. Mm-hmm. If I do sell them, they count as long-term capital gains. And um, the tax brackets for me, where I have to be zero up until well into six figures, um, 15% up to almost half a million, and then a maximum of 20%. You know, so my effective tax rate is in the teens. Yeah. 
Um, I'm sure that's less than a full-time journalist pays in taxes, almost anywhere in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't even work. I just, you know, hang out and uh, talk to people like you all day. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, it's grossly unfair. And it's because, frankly, the people who write the tax laws spend a lot more time with real estate investors than they do with people who earn money by the hour. And so the real estate investors and other investors don't want to pay taxes, frankly, and just believe they're entitled. Rich people often think that they're just better people, smarter people, God's countenance shined upon them, and they're just not supposed to pay taxes or do things that regular people do. Um, The second thing we work on is political power directly. We are advocating for systems where people with smaller amounts of money would have the same political influence that people with large amounts of money have, um, for the most part, by systems like we have here in New York City, for instance. I'm in New York City right now, Mm -hmm. where someone running for elected office, like mayor, a local office, can collect donations of $150 each, and those donations are matched by the um, uh, election department, and therefore that matched like eight to one. Therefore, that $150 donor is as important as a $1,000 donor. And to run for mayor or city council, you don't have to you know, be the brother-in-law of a real estate developer and collect money from all of his partners now. You can go to your community, find a lot of people who can put in a hundred bucks, which is reasonable in New York City, and you can have enough money to run for office. And that has actually worked. I see. It's actually changed the face of the New York City Council, or at least the faces in the New York City Council. And it's a different bunch of people than it was before that law was passed, and they're passing more progressive policies than was the case before. It actually works. Um, They've done things like that in Connecticut, in Maine, in the state of Washington, um, and other places are looking at various variations on that. So that's the second thing. The third thing we're advocating is simply higher minimum wages. Currently, the minimum wage, which is $2.13 an hour for people to get tips, $7.25 an hour for people that don't get tips, um, is not a living wage in pretty much anywhere in the United States. And places that have raised their wages have seen the income, not just of the wage earners go up, but of everyone go up. Look at Seattle, where they've raised the minimum wage. The very same people who are complaining about not being able to pay more are actually expanding their businesses because they've suddenly realized their customers have more money and more people can afford to eat out. And more people can afford to go out on dates. And more people can afford to buy ice cream than was the case before because they're making more money. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a bar owner, it makes a lot more difference to you how much beer money all those people in the bar have on a Friday night than the wages of that one guy standing behind the bar pouring a beer. And they figure that out. So that's what generates economic growth, sort of growth in income and aggregate, is the consumers having more money and being able to spend it. I'm planning on having several episodes devoted to minimum wage. It's a very strange, yeah, it's an interesting topic and and I think worth um, really exploring. It's a strange thing for me. I spend part of the year in a small town that's a resort town. And so there are a lot of service workers and the refrain always from the workers is we can't afford to live here. The cost of housing is too high and we simply don't make enough money. And then on the flip side, the business owners will say, we just can't employ people. They don't stay. Everybody leaves because it's so expensive. It's like, isn't there, (laughs) isn't there a way we could work this out? I mean, we have so many businesses that fold in that little town because they say we can't find people to work. And, you know, the, I mean, part of, not that you can have this open, you know, big conversation with a whole community, but I'm always confused by this. Well, maybe you can. That's what we call a democracy. I mean, we don't do it with every single person, although parts of Vermont still have town meetings. 
we do it by electing people on election day to go to a place we call the Capitol to talk to each other and have people from representing different parts of the community getting together and discussing things and figuring something out. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it can work. That's what our government is supposed to be doing. But part of the problem is they're not doing it enough because they have to spend all their time raising money and because some of them, frankly, don't want to. But yeah, you're right. There is an obvious problem with the market there. And not every community is the same. But maybe the business owners, if like if one business owner decided to suddenly pay more money, that'd be very expensive. But if the law was changed, they all had to pay more money, then everyone would have higher wages. And then people would be able to afford to live there. Mm-hmm. And they'd be able to pay more in rent. And they'd be going out to eat and paying more. And the business owners would be making more money in the long run. Mm-hmm. And not one person can't change it on his own, one small business owner. It ha- that's why it has to be a collective effort where the, raise, raise, where the wages are raised to everyone at the same time. And did you know of any instances where that's happened cooperatively instead of through legislation? Well, you heard Henry Ford, who used to say that he has to pay the workers enough so they can afford to buy cars. Mm-hmm. And when he started out, that was a big part of the market, was people who were working for his own factories. But no, it doesn't work with one business owner because it only works if the customers are getting raises at the same time as the employees for the most yeah. part. I mean, most businesses have to have more customers than employees. Yeah. And what do you have... Um observations about the states raising the minimum wage California of course there's a big push here to raise the minimum wage um what what have you seen work across the United States well look here in New York we have a higher minimum wage than some other neighboring states Mm -hmm. places with higher wages you know including California including the state of Washington Oregon New York those seem to be places where, A, the states have some money in their budgets to do things to provide services like education for their people. And those are places where people are building businesses. Look at where there's job growth. Look at where people are moving. It's not to the low-tax, low-wage states. It's to the high-wage and high-tax states because those are the states where people can build businesses, where they do have the infrastructure they need. So those states that are becoming higher wage states, they're actually seeing people want to live in their states and work in their states and build their businesses in their states. Let's talk about taxes. That's something that Abigail Disney has um, talked quite a bit about. And So tell me what the position of the organization is and what you'd like to see. We believe that the wealthy, the rich people, should pay higher tax rates than people who have to work for a living. We believe that having very wealthy people paying extremely low tax rates leads to inequality getting worse Mm -hmm. because it means that the people have to work for a living are getting further and further and further behind. They're not able to save. And as you mentioned, half the people in our country have no savings at all. But they have jobs, they're making an income, and they're paying taxes. Whereas the people who do have income, the top half, so many of them get a fairly small part of their income from their jobs and pay lower tax rates, and therefore, relatively, they're getting richer and the other people aren't. As long, if I'm making more money in my investments than I spend every year, I get richer and richer and richer every single year. And therefore, inequality is getting worse because half the population is not getting richer every year because they don't have money to invest. And so that is, that's the problem with our, in part with our tax system is because the wealthy people pay a lower percentage of their income as taxes than do people who have to work for a living. 
It really does feel as though things have gotten so extreme, in my opinion. I mean, it used to be that you'd think, oh, you know, there's a fairly significant number of rich people in the country. But now, you know, from what I can tell about the really, really uber rich in this country, they have just, they're in the stratosphere (laughs) compared to rich people in the past. And you look at, I think somewhere on the website, you have some hourly, uh, how much wealthy people make per hour. And it's just mind blowing. It is. Um, And because the wealthier you get, the more your wealth compounds. You know, Warren Buffett, you know, made his income tax information public uh, a few years ago. Um, he makes, I mean, he has taxable income of 10, 15 million dollars a year, a typical year. And he pays taxes and lives on, you know, five or 10 million dollars a year for his living expenses. I mean, somebody can live fairly well in that much. But really, Really, he's making billions of dollars a year. The value of his personal stake in his company is going up by, on average, over $3 billion a year. So if you look at that, how much, how much money he's really making, and most people talk about money, they mean not just their taxable income, but their investments going mm-hmm. up. So if you look at that, He's paying a very a small fraction of one percent, and um, you know, in taxes, in terms of how much money he's actually making, because of the capital gains tax rules. Because of capital gains tax rules, both that there are lower rates on the realized capital gains, and that you don't pay taxes at all on unrealized capital gains. Mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of people miss in these conversations: is how how the wealthy are making their money. And we've had an episode or two about CEO pay. And, you know, you kind of have to get in the weeds a little bit to understand exactly what's going on, why this gap is opening up so exponentially, it seems like, between everyday people and and really the uber rich. There, In my opinion, there's so many problems with our taxes right now, and they're so complicated. And you know, just the, the loopholes and craziness and it just seems like common sense doesn't doesn't prevail. Are there a few simple things that you would recommend that we push for or does the whole thing have to be dismantled? We're pushing for a very different system than what exists now. For instance, Senator Wyden uh, from Oregon, the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, says tax wealth like wages. Um, basically, let's tax all money you make the same way. And that would in some ways be simpler. And yes, everything's complicated for one reason or another. But if everyone paid had the same tax rates, you know, zero percent in the first whatever however many dollars and 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent is you know your income down to the millions. If that included investment income, wages, salaries, dividends, you know, patent royalties, every kind of income, yeah, we'd have a more fair system, and that would that would um, at least tend to arrest the increase in inequality. I wonder what people would think about that. I wonder if you know if everyday people who don't have savings would be enthusiastic about that or if people who had a little bit of savings would get huffy that, you know, well, I put a little money aside and now I'm going to get taxed on that. I guess the devil would be in the details about it. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are somehow taught that the way for them to get ahead is to appease the rich people Mm. and not, you know, get rich, you know, hoping that that's what they're told is that, Oh, don't upset these people or they'll move away or they'll, you know, the same way, you know, you know, were you taught as a kid, oh, don't bother these bullies or they'll take their basketballs and go home or something. No, probably not. But as adults, they're taught, oh, try not to annoy the bullies or they'll, you know, take their whatever toys and go home. Um, no, appeasement doesn't work. It's not a good strategy and it's not worked in the past either. So I think that's sort of the problem is hmm. that, that's what they're that's what they've been told and so that's why 
they need leaders with big, bold ideas who say, no, we're not going to take it anymore. We're going to stand up and say, we want bigger changes. That's interesting. You do sometimes hear people be worried, I guess, that, oh, you know, Bezos might do something or, (laughs) yeah, you do get this sort of more what I see is is more just sort of an adoration of the rich in the media, constantly, constantly pushing, you know, the the narrative that look how wonderful these rich people are. And I get tired of that. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being rich. I recommend everyone being rich. Right. But, <laughs> you know, I'm in favor of being rich. Believe me, it's better than the alternative. But it doesn't, I mean, I don't maybe be a wonderful person. I'm just, you know, regular God trying to, you know, improve the world the same way everyone else is. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, we have to understand that, like, these arguments that people make, oh, you know, oh, if we charge them more in taxes, they'll, um, you know, get robots to make the hamburgers to save money or something like that instead. And they don't understand that tax are just a percentage of profits. You know, if your local hamburger joint would make higher profits with robots instead of people, they would have already done that. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with how much taxes they pay. And I think people don't understand that it's not like a businessman first decides how much money he wants to make and then sees how much money he has. It's, oh, I have more than I need to make, therefore I'll pay some workers. He pays the workers when he needs to pay the workers to get the workers to work, not more and not less. And if he has money left over at the end, well, that's what he makes as his profit, owning the business. And so it's not like it's a zero-sum game, like, oh, if we tax him, he'll just pay the workers less. But that's not how it works. The business owner pays the workers what he needs to pay the workers in order to get them to work not more, not less. And whatever's left over after he pays the workers, well, that's how much he makes in profit being the owner of the business. And so that is true regardless of what his tax rate is. So he would rather make all the profit or half the profit or 30% of the profit rather than making nothing at all. So the decision on paying workers has nothing to do with how much this tax rate is on the profits that are left over after he pays the workers. Which makes sense, although I suppose you could argue that he would choose not to be in business or he would go into a different business if he paid more taxes. I I often feel, though, that these arguments are, what's the word for it, sort of nitpicky? If If he could have paid higher profits in a different business, he would, he would have started that other business already. Whatever argument there is, it doesn't depend on his tax rate. It's the same argument, whether the tax rate is 0% or 20% or 40% or 70%. If he could pay the workers less, he would already be paying the workers less. If he could be doing something else to generate higher profits, he'd already be doing something else to generate higher profits. Well, it's certainly a case, the case that taxes, I think, are disconnected to the labor wage. That certainly has to be the case. But I, I suppose that people might try and make that argument. That, but again, I feel as though some of these arguments are, are kind of nitpicky or focusing on small things when you have people who have just the tremendous wealth that, that, that we well, see now. focusing on non-existent things. You know, no... No one has ever said, oh, my tax rate is 70% of my profits, so I'd rather make zero than only big up 30%, so I'll just stay home and do nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not what happened. The people who complain the most, people like Ken Langone, who's running his lower taxes tour, he was one of the people who helped found Home Depot. His tax rate was 70% on $100,000 back then. And, you know, that didn't stop him from creating a huge business and becoming a billionaire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not going to stop the next generation of people from creating business and becoming billionaires either. 
I couldn't get a handle on what happened with the last tax bill. Does patriotic millionaires have an opinion about the last tax bill and what the effect it was on everyday people? You mean the, the tax cuts after the end of 2017? Yes. Uh, basically, we're opposed to pretty much everything in the entire bill, to the best of my recollection. I mean, basically, it made lower taxes for rich people, mm-hmm. period. I mean, all kinds of tax breaks were put in for investors and rich people, and it did little or nothing for people who uh, actually work for a living. Okay. I think that's pretty succinct. One of the things I've always been uh, unnerved by is how we seem to have senators go into government uh, as you know, making a reasonable income. And then after they've been in the Senate for many years, they seem to be very, very rich. And what do, what do you think about that? I mean, I don't, I don't know about which, which senators are you thinking of? Just in general, it seems like by the time senators uh, retire, they have just accumulated enormous wealth, not from their senatorial see, income, see, I but I yeah, don't, go ahead. I mean, I haven't, um, I don't actually have a problem with that. I actually think that I'd like to see our representatives, our senators, our Congress members, uh, you know, state legislators paid well. So they don't need outside income and and that they should consider representing us their full-time jobs. Mm. Um, most of the very wealthy representatives, senators and representatives are wealthy either because they were wealthy long before they ran for office, several owned huge car dealerships and things like that. Um, some are wealthy because their spouses are business people and make a lot of money. I mean, I don't really have a problem with with that. The problem I have is the fact that the people who are not wealthy can't really afford to run in the first place. Uh-huh. You know, if you're if you want to like not pay the senators and representatives as much, which some people advocate, really what you're saying is you only want rich people to run because it takes a huge amount of resources to do that. You have to be campaigning pretty for anyone who wins a race for Congress or the, their house or the Senate is working full-time for a year pretty much before they're actually getting an income and not many people can afford to take off from their jobs for months or a year without having any income mm-hmm. so I would um, I would um, you know, I think that's the problem is that we actually should be paying our our members of the House and Senate more so that they can afford to, you know, make more than a living wage and pay for their families and their two residences in two different places without having to get involved in, you know, crazy financial deals or anything else, you know, working part-time or being on boards or, you know, anything like that. I would like to see something where they're only paid, you know, a salary by the Treasury and don't get money from anything else, frankly, if it was up to me. But no, I, I mean, I don't think that there's Congress people, I mean, there are a few, Doug Collins, I think, are being sentenced for securities fraud shortly, but there are a few who do bad things. But the vast majority of the wealthy ones were wealthy before they become, before they became, you know, members of Congress, too. Yes, I wasn't, I that that wasn't on my agenda to, to, say that those people were making too much money from their incomes. Not at all. I think somebody's done some study about the stock portfolios of senators and how well they, well they perform. And they do seem to perform remarkably well, but I, or, you know, sort of hmm, raises an eyebrow, but I think that might go back to your original discussion about money and power. And I and I d- definitely support your idea that if we could get more everyday people into these positions, then we would be able to separate those two uh, more gracefully. Yeah, but think about it. Say you wanted to run for U.S. House of Representatives or the United States Senate. I mean, in your, I don't know where you live, but wherever you live, um, You'd have to start now at the mm-hmm. latest. I mean, most people, people, plenty of people have already started their campaigns. 
and been going for months. And you'd have to stop doing podcasts and everything else that you do and do it full time for, mm-hmm. you know, and it would be a full year before you actually get your first paycheck. Assuming you win. Because you might not. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Oh, it's extremely unappealing, which is part of the problem, I think. Yeah, yeah, that is part of the problem. <laughs> it's only appealing to people who really want that job and the kind of people who, you know, really think that it's fun to be a senator or a representative may or may not be the best people for the job. Some of them aren't, but some of them aren't. So what are some of the short-term initiatives that your organization would like to see happen? And then tell us about how you do your work, if it's through lobbying, fundraising, speaking, everything. Tell us about that. I mean, short-term, we're promoting the the laws to raise the minimum wage. The um, act passed the House of Representatives a few months ago. We're promoting H.R. 1, um, and we're promoting laws to change the tax system that uh, haven't even gotten that far yet. Um, the way we do this is we have our members talking to journalists, speaking at events, even doing op-eds, and we also bring our members to Capitol Hill to meet with Congress people. Mm-hmm. Um, for better or worse, with these business cards that say patriotic millionaires in big letters, we get meetings with pretty much anybody. Mm-hmm. They seem to like to meet with millionaires. Interesting. Some of them listen. Some of them don't. Some of them got to know us over the years. And so they, at least they listen. And at least they get a different point of view than the usual people who are, you know, the paid lobbyists who work for the people who have a lot of money to hire paid lobbyists and are just thinking about changing something so their client will, you know, make more money. Mm-hmm. What's HR1? Um, H.R. 1 is the For the People Act. Uh, John Sarbanes of Maryland um, was the main sponsor of that act. And he is basically promoting this law. It includes the measures I told you about before, about campaign finance reform mm. and matching funds for small donors for federal elections. And a number of other reforms are in how elections are conducted, how voters are registered to vote, a number of measures around the way we conduct our elections and the way we conduct our political campaigns I see. in order to be more inclusive. So we think that's very important, HR1. And um, we were we were promoting that and um, we're hoping that the United States Senate someday uh, takes up uh, those reforms. Interesting. So you have kind of raised your commitment to the group by becoming chair. And what motivated you yeah. to take on a bigger role? Well, frankly, I just want to do something to help improve things, really. I don't want to just be one of the people sitting around, you know. I want to be one of the people helping to solve the problem, not part of the problem. So I'm doing what I can do. I'm, you know, using my whatever skills and abilities I seem to have to try to um, advocate and promote our positions. and. I think we're making some progress. Yeah. I love the your optimistic tone that there's some solutions out there for us. Yeah, there are. There are. We just have to uh, get more of our own fellow citizens uh, to agree with us. And so long-term, what would you like your legacy and the group's legacy to be? I'd like to say that we've kind of made our system more democratic that we've kind of included more people, that we've kind of gone from, you know, the direction we're going now, which is going towards few rich and many poor, towards a different direction that we'll still have a few rich, we'll have a big middle class and not lots of poor people. I'm going for a system like the system that we think about when, you know, the 1950s, or at least for the white people who um, were part of that system at the time anyway where pretty much everybody could afford to have a job and send their kids to school and live okay and think that their kids were also going to be okay. I want mm-hmm. to go back to those days for everybody, not not just the white people. It'll be interesting to look back in a few decades and see 
what has happened and where some of the turning points were. I was talking to an author the other day who was talking about looking for early signals. And I was when I was reading about your group, I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is kind of an early signal of things to come. I hope so. I hope so. You'll have to, um, maybe in a couple of decades, you can interview my granddaughter and see what she says. Right. Yep. I'll get in touch. <laughs> so, Morris, I'm wondering if you would like to tell the listeners how they could get uh, more information about your group or get in touch or support you or anything else you'd like to share. Well, sure. Take a look at our website, patrioticmillionaires.org. Um, if you're thinking of running for uh, federal office, Congress, you can request an endorsement. You can look at our material and you can join if you want to. Patrioticmillionaires.org. We're the Patriotic Millionaires. Our staff is based in Washington, D.C. We have people in New York and California. And we look forward to working with you. Well, thank you very much for the work that you're doing and for being on the show. Thank you. Great to be on your show. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, we'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work.